Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of the crimes depicted, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and violence that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In the early evening of October 26, 1965, Stephanie Banaszewski ran down to the basement of her family's home, where her friend, Sylvia Likens, had been staying. Sylvia was curled up on the cold floor, motionless and unconscious. She was barely breathing. Stephanie carried her friend upstairs, gave her a warm bath, and tucked her into bed. As Sylvia was slowly regaining consciousness, Stephanie's mother, Gertrude, rushed into the room in a panic, screaming, Faker! She's faking! She attacked Sylvia, hitting her in the face with a book. Stephanie pushed her mother out of the room and closed the door. She helped Sylvia sit up and gave her some warm tea. Sylvia looked up at her, pleading, and asked Stephanie to take her home. Suddenly, Sylvia stopped breathing. Stephanie started performing CPR, and after a minute, she thought she could hear Sylvia's shallow breaths. But Sylvia's life was ebbing away. She would never see her home again. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. This is our second episode on the murder of 16-year-old Sylvia Likens by Gertrude Banaszewski, which took place in Indiana in 1965. Today, we'll piece together what happened to Sylvia in the last few weeks that led to her death. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. By July 1965, 37-year-old Gertrude Banaszewski was in dire straits, both emotionally and financially. Desperate to pay the bills, Gertrude agreed to board teenage sisters Sylvia and Jenny Likens for $20 a week, while their parents were working concessions with a traveling carnival. At first, Sylvia and Jenny seemed to get along well with Gertrude and the Banaszewski kids, but within just a week or two, Gertrude's behavior began to turn violent. She would hit Sylvia and Jenny for the slightest indiscretion. Gertrude also enlisted the help of her children and their friends to help with the beatings. On the evening of October 5th, 1965, Sylvia and Jenny's parents, Lester and Betty Likens, visited town and took the girls out for a quick dinner, then dropped them back off at Gertrude's. Lester and Betty were heading to Florida with the carnival and would be gone for three weeks. This was the last time they'd see Sylvia alive. As we learned in last week's episode, Gertrude's behavior was certainly far from mature or maternal, especially towards Sylvia and Jenny. Before Vanessa delves into Gertrude's psychology, as she will throughout this episode, first a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. Because Gertrude exhibited symptoms like depression, severe mood swings, displays of intense anger, and problems with impulse control, it was likely she suffered from borderline personality disorder. People with borderline personality disorder also tend to show signs of emotional immaturity, but she was adept at putting on a mature, motherly front to manipulate others. With other adults, Gertrude was the model of decorum. When she met with Sylvia's teachers, she expressed deep concern about Sylvia, even as she lied about why Sylvia wasn't going to class. The teachers never suspected Gertrude was anything more than a concerned guardian. Then she fooled Lester and Betty Likens. On their visits, they didn't seem to get any impression Gertrude was a danger to Sylvia and Jenny. She was also able to manipulate Reverend Roy Julian, the minister at the Memorial Baptist Church, which the family attended almost every Sunday. Reverend Julian had met Sylvia and Jenny in July 1965, when the girls started attending his church with the Banaszewskis. In September, he paid a personal visit to Gertrude's house. Gertrude told the Reverend that the medication she took for her chronic asthmatic bronchitis was making her so tired she had to sleep much of the day. In addition to coracetin and antihistamines, she'd been taking ephedrine to help her breathe better and phenobarbital to reduce the anxiety and nervousness caused by the ephedrine. These medications are addictive, and side effects often left Gertrude drowsy, irritable, and confused. As a result, Gertrude told the Reverend she couldn't keep up with her customers ironing. Ironing clothes was one of the few ways she could make money to support the family, so this was quite a hardship for her. The Reverend sympathized with Gertrude, 
but he was mostly worried about her oldest daughter, Paula's, well-being. He'd seen the cast on Paula's wrist and heard how she broke it by punching Sylvia in the face back in August. This didn't seem like a healthy family dynamic to him. He also knew Paula was pregnant at only 17, so he asked Gertrude about that as well. Gertrude seemed to be in complete denial. She told the Reverend that Paula was a good girl, and it was actually Sylvia who was pregnant. Sylvia was clearly not pregnant, but this didn't stop Gertrude from telling everyone about it. She told the Reverend that Sylvia had been skipping school and making advances on older men for money. She said she had to lock Sylvia in her room to keep her from sneaking out at night. This was startling news to Reverend Julian as he knew Sylvia to be a friendly, quiet girl when she attended church. He asked if he could talk to Sylvia personally and get to the bottom of the issue. Gertrude agreed, but just then Jenny walked in and Gertrude ordered Jenny to explain to the Reverend what Sylvia does. Jenny was coached to tell adults what Gertrude wanted them to hear. She immediately told Reverend Julian that after everyone went to sleep, Sylvia would sneak down to the kitchen and steal milk from the icebox. Jenny also said that Sylvia lied, but she didn't give specifics. The Reverend never saw Sylvia that day, nor did he see her the next time he visited the Banaszewskis, which was in October 1965. He was called to the house to see Stephanie, who was having fainting spells. Gertrude feared her daughter had a brain tumor. When the Reverend arrived, however, Gertrude turned the conversation again to Sylvia and Jenny. She talked about how difficult the girls were and how the money from their father didn't come very regularly. Though he understood the family was poor, Reverend Julian felt Gertrude might have been exaggerating her financial woes to gain sympathy. Gertrude used similar tactics to gain sympathy from her neighbor, Phyllis Vermillion. The Vermillion family had moved next door a couple of months earlier, in August. In fact, the two houses were barely four feet apart. Mrs. Vermillion was looking for a sitter for her young children. She'd heard around the neighborhood that Gertrude sometimes babysat, so she visited Gertrude at the beginning of September. As she and Gertrude drank coffee and chatted in the front room of the Banaszewski house, Mrs. Vermillion noticed Sylvia sitting at the dining room table sporting a black eye. Mrs. Vermillion asked Sylvia about it, but Sylvia only hung her head and didn't speak. According to Mrs. Vermillion, Gertrude shouted at Sylvia to go into the kitchen, saying, quote, just get out of my sight. I don't want nothing to do with you. I just hate you, end quote. Gertrude then told Mrs. Vermillion that Sylvia was three months pregnant. When Sylvia went into the kitchen, Paula filled a glass with hot water and threw it in Sylvia's face. Sylvia screamed in pain and started crying. Paula then boasted to Mrs. Vermillion that she was the one who gave Sylvia the black eye. Gertrude told Sylvia to go upstairs. She also told Sylvia that she was going to kill her because she was pregnant. Mrs. Vermillion didn't know quite what to do, but she didn't feel it proper to get involved. It was mid-October when Mrs. Vermillion saw Sylvia again. This time, Sylvia had another black eye and what Mrs. Vermillion called a busted mouth. Paula again bragged she had beaten up Sylvia, this time with the excuse that Sylvia had hurt her little brother. Mrs. Vermillion noted a significant difference in Sylvia's demeanor between the first time she saw her and now. 
At the beginning of September, Mrs. Vermillion thought Sylvia seemed frightened. Now, in the middle of October, she said Sylvia, quote, looked like she did not care whether she lived or died, end quote. Mrs. Vermillion and Gertrude met up occasionally to have coffee or chat together on their front porches. It was likely she witnessed Gertrude yelling at or punishing her children. The 1960s were a different era, and corporal punishment was widely used and accepted. According to a 40-year study by James and Jane Ritchie, in a group of 150 mothers interviewed in the 1960s, only one had never hit her child. Mrs. Vermillion later stated that she couldn't judge Gertrude. She felt sorry for her, describing Gertrude as a hardworking woman dealing with a lot of kids. Gertrude seemed very adept at gaining sympathy. To others, she appeared to be just a poor, well-intentioned mother who was too ill to handle a wild girl like Sylvia. Gertrude also seemed increasingly obsessed with the idea that Sylvia was promiscuous. As we mentioned last week, Gertrude appeared to be jealous of Sylvia's youth, and she might have felt a vicarious thrill at the thought of Sylvia doing wild things she couldn't do herself. Yet, at the same time, it gave Gertrude an excuse to look down on Sylvia and punish her. Gertrude might have been exhibiting what Sigmund Freud described as psychological projection. According to Freud, this is a defense mechanism that some people subconsciously employ in order to cope with difficult feelings or emotions. By projecting those feelings onto someone else, the person can avoid admitting to or dealing with them on their own. Around October 12, 1965, Sylvia was accused of wetting the bed. It's possible that the beatings left Sylvia with bruised or damaged kidneys, making it difficult for her to control her bladder. Sylvia now wasn't allowed to sleep upstairs with the other Banashevsky kids. She would go upstairs to use the bathroom, but Gertrude ordered Sylvia to spend the rest of her time in the basement, including sleeping there at night. The basement was dank and dark with a cement floor. There was a set of bed springs leaning against the wall, but they were beyond use. Sylvia was to sleep on a pile of rags and old clothes under the steps near the coal furnace. Sylvia's eviction to the basement was a brutal one. Gertrude told Paula, Stephanie, and Stephanie's boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, that this was how you do it, then pushed Sylvia down the wooden steps. Over the next few days, Coy invented his own way to send Sylvia down the basement steps. He would hold her arms behind her before kicking her down the stairs. But this wouldn't be the worst punishment she would endure. The horrors were only beginning. Coming up, we'll try and understand what happened in the last few weeks of Sylvia's life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. 
Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We wanted to remind our listeners that this episode includes discussions of abuse and violence against children that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Now, back to the story. Throughout the summer of 1965, Sylvia Likens had suffered months of abuse at the hands of Gertrude Banaszewski, her children, and their friends. By the middle of October, Sylvia was ordered to spend most of her time in the basement. The once lively teenager was now listless and submissive. She accepted her punishment without fighting back. In part one, we discussed the theory of learned helplessness. This is when humans and other animals have been conditioned to expect pain, suffering, or discomfort without a way to escape it. Believing they have no control over what happens to them, they begin to think, feel, and act as if they're helpless, even when they're given an opportunity to escape the pain. According to allpsych.com, the same holds true for people in situations of domestic violence. Those who have been unable to escape violent situations in their homes are more likely to accept future violence as inescapable, even when presented with options to avoid the violence. At this point, the Banaszewski household was the closest thing Sylvia had to a home. Her parents had been off traveling for months, and asking them for help may not have seemed like an option. After months of being conditioned to the abuse at Gertrude's house, Sylvia seemed to have given up, taking whatever punishment was given. The food Sylvia was getting by this time was mostly just crackers and water. There are conflicting stories among the Banaszewski kids, but it's probable Sylvia was not always allowed to eat at the dinner table with the others. Starvation and malnutrition may have also affected Sylvia's mental processes, making it difficult for her to think clearly about her situation. Gertrude also began instructing her children to give Sylvia baths several times a week, as she was dirty. These baths usually involved Gertrude and the kids dumping a struggling Sylvia into a tub of scalding water. Sometimes they would tie her hands and feet or gag her so her screams wouldn't be heard by the neighbors. When Paula discovered an open sore on Sylvia's scalp, possibly from one of her tumbles down the steps, she held Sylvia's head under scalding water to clean it. Paula also decided Sylvia needed a haircut, and she cropped Sylvia's long hair short. Sylvia asked for a lock to keep, but Paula refused. Gertrude, a heavy smoker, also began punishing Sylvia by burning her with cigarettes. The kids followed Gertrude's example and also pressed burning cigarettes to Sylvia's skin. During Sylvia's autopsy, the doctor found at least a hundred round cigarette burns on Sylvia's body, some half-healed and some fresh. 
Around this time, Gertrude claimed her bronchitis was getting worse. She was possibly taking more than her recommended dosage of medication, and she wasn't eating much herself. Often too tired to run the household, she put 17-year-old Paula in charge instead. This meant Paula took over punishing Sylvia as well. By the first or second week of October 1965, punching, beating, and burning Sylvia seemed to become a daily affair for the teens. And it wasn't always instigated by Gertrude. Not only did Paula and Coy Hubbard get in their licks, but 12-year-old Johnny Banaszewski was also told to punch Sylvia. On October 15th, a visitor appeared at the Banaszewski house, a public health nurse named Barbara Sanders. The health department had received an anonymous call that there were children in the Banaszewski house with open, running sores. Gertrude invited the nurse in. She told her she knew who the complaint was about, Sylvia Likens. Sylvia didn't keep herself clean, and her hair was matted and dirty, which had resulted in sores all over her body. But Gertrude explained that she'd kicked Sylvia out of the house for being a sex worker, and she no longer knew where Sylvia was. Paula echoed her mother's sentiments. Gertrude emphasized that her own children were always clean, went to church, and were well supervised. Mrs. Sanders took a look at Dennis, the baby, and he seemed healthy and fairly well cared for. Jenny sat, quiet and obedient during the nurse's visit. Mrs. Sanders asked Jenny how she was, and Jenny very quietly replied she was fine. She wouldn't talk any further. Mrs. Sanders took a quick look around the house. It seemed messy, but not inordinately dirty. In her job, she'd seen much worse. She didn't open the door to the basement, where she would have found Sylvia curled up on the floor in a pile of rags. The nurse left and went back to the health department to write her report. Since Sylvia was no longer living there, according to Gertrude, the Banaszewskis were off the hook. After this visit, Gertrude became nervous about what would happen if Sylvia's abuse were to become public. Gertrude and Paula came up with a plan. They would have Sylvia confess her supposed crimes in writing, so everyone would know her punishment was justified. They gave Sylvia a piece of paper and instructed her to write a letter to her parents about her misconduct. They had Sylvia list 15 examples from stealing to not doing her chores to talking back to Gertrude. Gertrude and Paula also instructed the kids, especially Jenny, never to volunteer any information about Sylvia. When asked, they should just say that Sylvia had been sent to a juvenile center for bad behavior. Jenny slipped once and told a church friend that Sylvia was at home. The younger Banaszewski girls, Marie and Shirley, overheard and told Gertrude. That evening, Jenny got the paddle. She never mentioned Sylvia to a friend again. But about a week after Sylvia's banishment to the basement, Jenny was getting seriously worried about her sister. Sylvia had burns all over her body from cigarettes and scalding baths, as well as abrasions and bruises from being thrown to the floor and rammed headfirst into walls. Jenny had assumed Gertrude would eventually get Sylvia medical help, but it didn't happen. Jenny had been conditioned to obey Gertrude just as thoroughly as Sylvia, and the thought of telling the police, a teacher, or a neighbor never occurred to her. She assumed that if she told anyone, she'd just be punished the same way as Sylvia. 
A recent study was done by researcher Michelle Churia on the loss of autonomy in people who have been chronically abused. The study showed that even though there might not be physical constraints on the abused person's freedom of movement, there are psychological constraints on the person's freedom of choice. The abused person can't conceive of simply walking out the door and leaving. This problem would have been compounded by the fact that Jenny and Sylvia were only teenagers without any money or local friends and family. They had nowhere to go, even if they did choose to leave the Banaszewski house. On October 19th, Stephanie went down to the basement and brought Sylvia some donuts and water. Sylvia was slowly starving. She ate the donuts, but it didn't sustain her for long. A day or two later, Sylvia passed out from hunger and was unconscious for 20 minutes. On October 22nd, about 10 days after Sylvia had been banished to the basement, she finally did get some dinner. Johnny gave Sylvia a bowl of soup, then told her to eat with her fingers. Sylvia tried, but she wasn't given enough time to finish before Johnny snatched the bowl away. That night, Gertrude decided it was time to give Sylvia another chance at sleeping upstairs. She had Johnny, Coy, and Stephanie tie Sylvia to a bed. Then, with her cruel, twisted logic, Gertrude explained to Sylvia that she couldn't go to the bathroom until she learned not to wet the bed. While the others were downstairs, Sylvia whispered to Jenny for a glass of water. Sylvia drank it and fell asleep. But that night, she wet the bed. When Gertrude found out the next morning, she sent Sylvia back to the basement. That afternoon, Gertrude was smoking at her kitchen table when Ricky Hobbs stopped by. Ricky, 14, often visited after school, but he didn't spend his time with the Banaszewski kids. He came to visit Gertrude. As we discussed last week, Gertrude and Ricky Hobbs may have had a sexual relationship, though they both denied it. Gertrude's emotional immaturity and controlling personality possibly led to her tendency to seek relationships with much younger men, or in Ricky's case, a teenager. A 14-year-old would have been much more impressionable and easier for Gertrude to control. Gertrude complained to Ricky that her bronchitis was acting up and she wasn't breathing very well. She also mentioned that Sylvia was in the basement, which surprised Ricky. He had heard Sylvia was at a juvenile center. To prove Sylvia was there, Gertrude called her up from the basement. Sylvia came upstairs, lethargic, wearing tan shorts and a light blouse. She had bruises and sores all over her skin. Gertrude asked Sylvia if she knew what a tattoo was. Sylvia replied she did. Gertrude was still dwelling on the rumors Sylvia had started at school the previous month that Paula and Stephanie slept around. She said that since Sylvia had branded her daughters as promiscuous, she was going to brand Sylvia. Gertrude's younger children, Jimmy, Shirley, and Marie, were all watching, as well as Jenny. Gertrude told Shirley and Marie to bring her a sewing needle, then ordered Sylvia to undress. When Sylvia hesitated, Gertrude took off Sylvia's clothes and made her stand naked in the corner. Gertrude then pulled up a chair and wielded the sewing needle. Before Jenny could protest, Gertrude sent her out to the store. Jenny left the house, obedient as always. Sylvia stood, bearing the pain, 
as Gertrude carved I'm into her stomach. After that, Gertrude couldn't continue, claiming she was getting sick. She called Ricky over to help, which he seemed happy to do. Ricky couldn't spell prostitute, so Gertrude wrote out what Ricky was supposed to carve. Ricky had Marie help him sterilize the needle with a match, and he proceeded to finish Gertrude's work. If Sylvia flinched, Ricky hit her with the back of his hand. It only took a few minutes for him to finish. What he carved into Sylvia's stomach were the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Jenny returned from the store shortly after, and 12-year-old Randy Lepper, a friend of Johnny's, also came over. Gertrude had Sylvia get dressed and then made Sylvia show everyone her tattoo. Gertrude told the kids that Sylvia had been to a sex party. As if this wasn't enough, Ricky came up with the idea to brand Sylvia with the letter S. Ricky found an anchor bolt in the basement. He had Shirley help him heat the bolt's hooked end with burning newspaper, and they pressed it into Sylvia's chest as she cried and squirmed. By that evening, Sylvia was sent back to the basement, scared and in insurmountable pain. Jenny came down and sat next to her on the basement floor. Sylvia told her sister she knew she was going to die. Jenny begged her not to die, but Sylvia just repeated that she knew she would. Neither of them even considered the idea of leaving the Banaszewski house. We don't know if Gertrude had made serious death threats to Sylvia or if Sylvia was just extremely scared from that day's abuse. Maybe her internal injuries were worse than anyone knew. At any rate, what's striking is that if Sylvia was sure she would die from the abuse, she felt helpless to avoid it. The next day, on October 24th, Gertrude and Paula became nervous that news of Sylvia's new tattoo would get out. They dictated another letter for Sylvia to write to her parents. The letter starts, quote, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something, so I got in the car and they all got what they wanted, and they did and did, and when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores all over my face and all over my body, and they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it." End quote. The rest of the letter describes how Sylvia had done just about everything to make Gertrude angry, including urinating on a mattress, never doing chores, and costing Gertrude a fortune in doctor's bills by making her a nervous wreck. Sylvia complied and wrote the letter, but her spirit was broken. Later in the day, when she was given her daily crackers, she refused to eat. The next evening, Sylvia found out that the note Gertrude had made her write was part of a bigger scheme. Gertrude told Randy Lepper and Johnny that they should take Sylvia out into the woods, leave her there, and then call the police to go looking for her. Gertrude had been taking more than her usual dosage of medication, and her mood swings and irritable behavior were out of control. She picked up a chair and swung it at Sylvia, but due to her medication-induced clumsiness, she stumbled, missed Sylvia entirely, and broke the chair. Gertrude then grabbed the paddle to hit Sylvia, but instead hit herself in the eye, turning it black and blue. Gertrude ordered Jenny to go upstairs and get dressed. 
She told Jenny that she was going to help Johnny blindfold Sylvia and take her out into the woods. Then, for the first and last time, Sylvia tried to run away. She bolted for the door, but she was weak from her injuries and starvation. She only made it as far as the front porch before Gertrude dragged her back inside. Gertrude sat Sylvia and told her to eat some toast, maybe to placate her, or maybe because Gertrude was finally alarmed at how thin the girl had become. But Sylvia's mouth was swollen from being punched in the jaw so many times. She said she couldn't swallow. At her refusal to eat, Gertrude hit Sylvia with a brass curtain rod. Gertrude seemed to have abandoned her plan to take Sylvia to the woods, at least for now. Later that evening, Coy Hubbard stopped by the house. He hit Sylvia with a broomstick so hard it knocked her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged a motionless Sylvia back to the basement. This was only the beginning of a long night for both Sylvia and Gertrude. We don't know exactly what happened on the night of October 25th, 1965. But by the next morning, Sylvia's condition was worse than ever, and she would never recover. Coming up, we'll take a look at Sylvia's final days. Now back to the story. By the evening of October 25th, 1965, Gertrude Banaszewski seemed to be spiraling out of control. After her plan to leave Sylvia Likens in the woods went awry, she dragged Sylvia back down to the basement. That night, at about a quarter to one in the morning, next-door neighbors Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion heard odd noises coming from the basement of the Banaszewski house. It sounded like the scraping of a shovel on cement. Thinking it was an odd hour to be shoveling coal, Mrs. Vermillion went outside to see if she could figure out what was going on. She heard Gertrude shouting from inside the basement. It sounded as if she was yelling at someone. Mrs. Vermillion noticed Gertrude's basement light was on, but she didn't go closer to the house to look. Instead, she just went back inside. Mrs. Vermillion tried to go back to bed, but she could still hear the off and on scraping and shouting from the house next door. She put up with the noises as long as she could, and by around 3 a.m., she was about to call the police. But then the sounds finally stopped. Mrs. Vermillion went back to sleep. The next morning, Jenny Likens and the Banaszewski kids headed to school without checking in on Sylvia in the basement. But that afternoon, Jenny did come home for lunch. She made toast and took some down to Sylvia. Sylvia was half sitting and half lying on the floor, mumbling incoherently. She refused the toast. Jenny didn't know how to help her sister. She just ate her lunch and went back to school. Later that day, Gertrude brought Sylvia to the kitchen and propped her up at the table. Sylvia was still mumbling and couldn't hold the glass of milk Gertrude gave her. Sylvia's arm spasmed, throwing the glass to the floor. By about 3.30 in the afternoon, Sylvia had been taken back to the basement. Jenny stopped by and saw her sister briefly after school. Sylvia tried to talk, but only babbled. She held a pear in her hand and tried to bite into it, but then she mumbled that her teeth felt loose. Jenny had to go, as she was raking leaves that afternoon to earn some money. She told Sylvia goodbye. 
this was the last time she saw her sister alive. Sylvia's autopsy showed her cause of death to be a subdural hematoma, which occurs when a head injury causes a vein under the skull to rupture and bleed. The blood collects between the brain and the skull, causing increased pressure. If not treated, it often leads to death. Sylvia's slurred speech, weakness, apathy, and confusion were all signs of a subdural hematoma. Even though she'd been abused for several weeks, this sudden onset of symptoms seems to point to the night before, when Gertrude was alone with Sylvia in the basement, as the likely time the head injury occurred. By late afternoon, Sylvia had also moved her bowels, soiling herself. Gertrude was in a frenzy, screaming at Sylvia to clean herself up, but Sylvia was too weak and incoherent to notice. Gertrude had Randy Lepper come over with a garden hose. Then her son Johnny came down and turned the hose on Sylvia as she lay on the basement floor. Stephanie came down and shouted at her brother to turn off the hose. And it was Stephanie who realized that at around 5.30 p.m., Sylvia didn't appear to be breathing. No one called a doctor. Stephanie just held Sylvia's limp body and cried. Ricky Hobbs stopped by right then and noticed the commotion in the basement. He came down and gave Sylvia chest compressions. When he detected Sylvia was breathing, he helped Stephanie carry her upstairs to the bathroom. Stephanie gave Sylvia a warm bath and she seemed to recover a bit. Sylvia said, quote, I sure wish my daddy was here, end quote. Stephanie dressed Sylvia in warm, dry clothes and laid her on a mattress. She gave Sylvia warm tea. Gertrude was panicked, running around the house and screaming that Sylvia was faking. Gertrude hit Sylvia twice in the face with a book before Stephanie managed to push her mother out the door. Only minutes later, Sylvia stopped breathing. Ricky ran to call the police. Stephanie gave Sylvia mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and she thought she heard Sylvia's faint breaths again. Officer Melvin Dixon arrived at the Banaszewski's at 6.30 p.m. after getting a call of a possible deceased person at the house. As Officer Dixon entered the back bedroom, Stephanie expected him to revive Sylvia. But Dixon didn't even try. He could tell Sylvia was dead. Officer Dixon started questioning Gertrude. He noticed that Gertrude was nervous, but in his line of work, he knew many people were nervous under stressful circumstances like this. But Gertrude had already figured out her alibi. She gave Officer Dixon the note she'd made Sylvia write only a few days before, which said she'd run off with a gang of boys. She told Officer Dixon that Sylvia had staggered into the backyard at about 5.30 that night injured and bloody, clutching the note in her hand. Ricky Hobbs backed up Gertrude's story. When asked why he was at the Banaszewski house, he said he was a friend of Gertrude's. By the time Jenny got back from raking leaves, the house was swarming with police. At the news of her sister's death, she burst into tears. The police questioned Jenny, and she began to give the story Gertrude had drilled into her. Sylvia had run off with a gang of boys and no one had seen her for days. But then Jenny found the courage she hadn't had for so many months. She leaned in and whispered to the police officer, quote, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything, end quote. 
The day after Sylvia's death, Lester and Betty Likens got the news and flew back to Indiana. They were in shock. During the course of the investigation, the police interviewed Gertrude, the Banaszewski children, neighbors, and other witnesses. In all, one adult and 10 minors were arrested. Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and Johnny Banaszewski, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard were all charged with first-degree murder. The indictment charged them with inflicting fatal injuries on Sylvia with premeditated malice. Anna Sisko, Judy Duke, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, and Mike Monroe were arrested and taken to the juvenile center under delinquency charges. By the time the trial started in April 1966, charges against them had been dropped and they were released to their parents. Because Sylvia had endured such prolonged and horrific abuse, a lot of the trial's testimony centered on whether Gertrude was sane at the time of the murder and the months before. There are two considerations in determining criminal insanity. The first is whether a defendant is considered competent, that is, if they're able to comprehend the nature of the charges. The second consideration is sanity at the time of the crime. If the defendant understands the nature of their actions, knows right from wrong, and has sufficient willpower to control their actions. Three psychologists examined Gertrude and declared her legally sane. The pathologist, Dr. Charles Ellis, confirmed that the ultimate cause of Sylvia's death was a subdural hematoma, with the numerous other injuries, shock, and malnutrition also contributing to her demise. He also added that had Sylvia gotten medical treatment in time, she would likely have survived. Dr. Ellis couldn't determine for certain what caused the head injury. It could have been a fist, a board, a book, a fall down the stairs, a judo chop, a Coke bottle, or a bang against the wall. He ruled out a broomstick as being too small compared to the wound, so that seemed to let Coy Hubbard off the hook. But determining which weapon struck the fatal blow was of little consequence to the prosecutors. Surprisingly, the shovel that was heard scraping the basement floor the night before Sylvia's death was never taken into evidence or mentioned as a point of interest. In fact, when the jury was taken to the house to see the scene of the crime for themselves, the shovel was still leaning against the basement wall. When Gertrude took the stand, she appeared pale and sleepy. She sprinkled her testimony with complaints about the hardship she'd endured in her life. She also emphasized more than once that she'd been so sick and weak because of her illnesses that she could not have possibly hurt Sylvia. She blamed most of the abuse on her children and their friends. Gertrude's children contradicted much of her testimony. As 11-year-old Marie testified, Gertrude fixed her eyes on her daughter, nodding yes or no to her as every question was asked. But when the prosecutor noticed and put a stop to it, he was able to get Marie to confess she saw Gertrude hitting Sylvia, holding Sylvia's head under scalding water, and encouraging Johnny to punch Sylvia. But the most damaging testimony was given by Jenny Likens. Jenny testified in a direct, composed manner, breaking down into sobs only once, when she described how Sylvia had told her she knew she was going to die. At this, the judge called for a half-hour recess to let Jenny recover before continuing. After Jenny finished her testimony, the defense lawyers tried to shake her resolve several times, 
asking her why she didn't go for help for her sister. Jenny replied, quote, I was scared. Gertrude just kept beating me. I guess I just did what she said, and I wish I hadn't, end quote. One lawyer asked Jenny, quote, you could have told neighbors about this if you wanted to, couldn't you? End quote. Jenny replied, her voice breaking, quote, I could have. That don't mean I wanted to die, though, end quote. The trial lasted five weeks. After it was over, Lester and Betty Likens talked of going back on the road, as it was carnival season and they needed to work. This left Jenny Likens without a permanent home once again. But Jenny had won her way into the hearts of everyone who'd heard her story. Prosecutor Leroy New decided she needed a chance at a more stable life, so he and his wife adopted Jenny. They were able to provide for a new brace for her leg and get her back into high school. Gertrude Banaszewski was pronounced guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder and also sentenced to life. Ricky Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and Johnny Banaszewski were found guilty of manslaughter and all sentenced to 2 to 21 years in the Indiana State Reformatory. Johnny, at 12, would be the youngest inmate in the institution's history. Gertrude was considered a model prisoner and a den mother to the other inmates. It's impossible to know whether she went through a genuine change of heart or if she was manipulating the guards and inmates into trusting her, the same way she'd always done. When Gertrude came up for parole in 1985, outraged residents of Indiana signed a petition to prevent her release. 40,000 signatures were gathered, but it wasn't enough to sully Gertrude's reputation within the reformatory. She was released after serving only 19 years. Gertrude never confessed to actually killing Sylvia Likens. She maintained that she was on drugs at the time and didn't remember anything that happened. But she did say she took responsibility for what happened to Sylvia while she was in her care. Gertrude died in 1990 at the age of 60. In 2001, a six-foot granite stone plaque, a memorial to Sylvia Likens, was placed in Willard Park in Indianapolis. The murder has inspired several books and movies, all trying to make sense of what happened. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Kristen Kirby and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.